you know, other story, our stories have to be told. Other stories have to be told. And so if you have it in yourself at all, anywhere to be a writer, do it because um, the world needs your voice, um, needs your story. And you never know who's going to encounter it and whose life it's going to change. Good morning, Native America. I'm Bella. And I'm Haley. And this is Yay Podcast! And I'm here with Young and Indigenous Podcast is an outlet for people to know about Indigenous knowledge, storytelling, and history. Through our youthful journeys as Indigenous people, through these stories, young people and elders share their experiences with us. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. I'm about to tell some red stories. Stay tuned. <laughs> is a luminous spiral, a golden basket woven of sunshine, water, and birdsong. I'm told that the birds sing so sweet because of all the berries they eat, and that is how you can have a sweet voice, too. In my native language, the word for salmonberry is alila. In Sanskrit, lila means God plays. Salmonberries sometimes look that way. Every year they debut, spectacular in the landscape, worthy of their genus name, Rubus spectabilis, meaning red sight worth seeing. Each drooplet holds a seed and the shimmering secret kept by rain of how to rise, float above the earth, feel the sun, and return. Nguitu hinch waikihia curly kunail. Hello friends, my name is Waikikia Curly Bear or Denise Curly Bear. I come from the Quinault Indian Nation and I am here with Rena Priest. Very nice to be here with you all. Um Yeah, just really thank you for the invitation. What has been passed on to you that you want to keep alive? Oh gosh, uh, so much. Um, sometimes I use poems as a personal archive to keep people's voices with me. Um, I like to say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but you can't get an internal snapshot unless you write a poem about it. So, um, you know, I have poems keeping my grandmother's voice alive and with me. I have poems um, keeping memories with me. This, the poem that I just read, Tour of a Salmonberry, is actually an example of that. My mom, every year uh, during salmonberry season, because you know, the winters are so long and gray and, and rainy here. And then when salmonberry season comes around and the sprouts start to come up, Sasky, that's what we call the salmonberry sprout. <laughs>
And then the, when the when the first salmon berries pop, my mom always tells the story about how when she was a girl, her grandpa Casmer always would say, um, if you want to sing sweet, you got to eat a lot of berries like the birds. That's why they sing so pretty. And so he, you know, she recounts this story from her childhood. Great grandpa Casmer passed away before I was born, but she, you know, has a lot of stories about him. And so to keep her voice and her, you know, that story alive, I put it into a poem and it kind of celebrates that little piece of, you know, what it is in our family uh, during salmon berry season, but also just salmon berries in general, so that maybe other people um, can have that feeling for them when they come, when they first show up in the landscape. When did you write your first poem and what inspired you? Yeah, so I was seven when I wrote my first poem. I was in the first grade, and um, I was homesick, and my gra- my grandma was taking care of me because my mom was at work, and so uh, she had to go to town, or she had to go to Ferndale and pick up my homework, and she came back, and she had this paper cloud with streamers on it, and I thought it was so pretty, and the assignment was to write springtime words on it. And I thought, ooh, I'm going to try it because this cloud was really something. I thought, I'm going to try to write a poem on there. And um, that was how I wrote my first poem. And it was called Spring. And it was like, the flowers are blooming, the bees are zooming, um, zooming around looking for honey, something like that. I don't have it anymore, but um, I saved it for a long time. And my teacher, she liked it, and she either gave it to the the Ferndale paper or the school paper, I don't know, but somehow it ended up in newsprint with my name on it, and she clipped it out of the newspaper and she gave it to me, and I remember seeing it and being like, oh my god, (laughs) like (laughs) my name in print, you know? Um, So I I remember taking it home to my mom and telling her I was going to be a poet when I grew up, and her her response was like, oh, how about a lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so anyway that was the story of my first poem and I didn't write I mean I kind of always wrote poetry in journals and things but I didn't really like take it up seriously I think until I got to undergrad at Western what was it like for you growing up in Lummi growing up at Lummi um you know it's it's funny because you don't really have a perspective when you're a child of, of any other life other than your own. And you always hear people talk wherever they grew up. Like if you ask someone who grew up in New York, what was it like growing up in New York? They'd be like, well, I don't know. It's just New York. It's just where I lived, you know. Um, so I think in hindsight, looking back, it was a beautiful childhood. Um, a lot of time at the beach. A lot of time, you know, I remember some of my first earliest memories are of waiting for my mom at the beach because she would paddle. Um, she, she was a canoe puller and she'd take me down to the beach with her and I'd just sit and watch. Or sometimes they would take me out on the canoes, but I had to sit really still. And, you know, the choice was either like sit really still in the canoe so you don't tip everybody or sit on the beach and do and play or whatever. Um, so I would I would usually opt to be on the beach. But um you know, just a lot of time kind of hanging out with grandma, <laughs> hanging out with the cousins. Cat, run out of time. 
You've been named the Poet Laureate of Washington. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I'm just about to wrap up my term here. Um, it's a two-year appointment. Uh, the position is... It, so the, a Poet Laureate, that term dates back to ancient Greece um, when heroes and poets and leaders were crowned with the crown of laurels to signify that they had um, made some achievement. And so Washington State, um, it's originally... The very first Poet Laureate was actually from Bellingham, and I think her name was Mary Higginson, I can't remember, but she was in the 1800s. Um, and then they like didn't, it went away and they didn't do it for a long time. But in, they started it back up again in 2006, I believe, with Sam Green being our first um, Poet Laureate in, in contemporary times. And then I'm the sixth Poet Laureate, and... Um, the first Indigenous Poet Laureate. And so I go to a lot of schools and libraries and um, do readings for like nonprofit organizations and um, just, just wherever, whoever will fill out the form and invite me, <laughs> which they introduced the form for the first time this, you know, during my term. And I remember looking at it and I was like, guys, no one's going to fill all this paperwork out to try to invite me. And I was wrong. It's been crazy. It's been like a steady stream of events and invitations over the last two years um and I've been so many places in Washington I places I didn't even know existed they told me that and I was like oh I've lived here all my life I know everything no no Washington's a big crazy state um but it's been fun and uh the position is appointed by the governor, appointed by the governor, selected by a committee of my peers, and then appointed by the governor, and then it'll be done um, at the end of March. So I'm coming into home stretch here. <laughs> I've been able to write a little bit, but not nearly as much as when I'm not. Um, I I feel like I write a lot of emails and correspondence, and I do a lot of scheduling. Um, and, and I do have an assistant that keeps track of my schedule for Humanities Washington, but I also need to make sure that I'm where I need to be <laughs> when I need to be there. So I keep track of all of that too. And it's kind of a lot, um, but I have been able to, I have managed to set a little bit of writing time aside here and there. And then it's nice to be invited into certain projects that like demand the writing because then I'm like okay I can, I can this is my pro I can tell everybody like shut off the email and say I'm working on a project and um, really devote some time to doing this the thing that I really love to do which is make poems so yeah I think I make a lot of discoveries in the process of writing yeah, I definitely um, learned a lot during write, while I was writing Sublime Subliminal. And sometimes when I go back and read old poems, that's always surprising too. Um, and I've definitely learned about the process, you know, by, by doing it. I, like I learned you can over-edit a poem. <laughs> if you just tinker with it too much, you can ruin it. Um, it can become, it, it's something about like writing the soul right out of it. Just, you know, editing the soul right out of it. Like it's, it feels more alive when it's still a little raw and clunky to me. Um, 
I think when I play with it too much, my voice sort of, I don't know, it gets sanded down or the edges get smoothed over to where it's like, who is that? I don't, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> um, you know, you lose the detail or whatever. This was, I, I liked your question about my childhood. That was good. People don't usually, they ask about the first poem, but not really about what my life was like here at Lummi. And I'm grateful for that question because, you know, I think people have weird ideas about, you know, what it is to grow up at Lummi. Like, oh, that must have been hard. And I'm like, actually, it's kind of wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there are definitely difficult things that are, um, I think put in place by the dominant culture that make it hard in ways, um, you know, the haves and the have nots sort of thing. But yeah, it, it's nice to have a chance to talk about how like truly magical family is and um, what it is to, to live in a place where you have opportunities to connect with, you know, your beaches and, and um, your cousins and things like that. So, yeah. Thank you. Another thing that I like to do at the start of poetry workshops is ask people where they think poetry comes from. And then there's always somebody, you know, like, oh, dreams. Oh, from my brain. Um, <laughs> and, you know, from my thoughts, from my memories. And it's always kind of interesting um, to hear what, what, the, what the first thought is, you know, from from people who participate in the workshops, but then I say, okay, so um, if you ever feel like you don't have anything to write about, just try to sit and be quiet and don't, uh, don't do anything. Like just sit for a little while and try not to think and just notice what your, what your brain is doing. And, um, and then if there's something that keeps popping up, write about that, you know, because there's always something going on in there. So it's kind of fun, like, you just write about that and then see what happens. The Heart of an Eagle The days had become unlit and the nights had become illuminating. The rivers had become strangled and the sea had become sick. The forests had become denuded, and the mountains had become lonely. The animals run scared, lest they had already perished. The eagle flies high and can see all beings. The eagle, filled with deep melancholy, flew low. The eagle flew far in search of a man, a man who was destined to become wise, a man who loved all beings alike, a man who was destined to lead his people. Eagle found him. Eagle asked him, what do you see? Eagle listened to him. Eagle asked him, what do you hear? Eagle sang to him. Eagle asked him, what do you feel? Eagle covered him. Eagle asked him, what do you say? Eagle became one with the man and the man could see, hear, feel, and say. Eagle told the man of a grave danger, and the man knew what needed to change. Eagle and the man are here today. They fight hard to ensure that they will be here tomorrow. 
Eagle and the man fly higher than all to look after all beings on earth. I had sort of, right before this happened, resigned myself to um, it being a thing that I did just to nurture myself spiritually, because um, uh, trying to make it into a career is such a difficult thing. Um, but now that I've done that footwork and um, have that the, the experience of being a poet laureate behind me, or n nearly behind me, um, I can see now what the avenues would be for me to pursue in order to continue to like, uh, to continue to do this professionally. But I think it's also helpful that I had understood that I was going to maybe do other things and also poet like for myself, because, um, you know, if I, if it turns out that I end up going back to work somewhere, I still will have that, um, know how to do that for myself. Yeah. Um, did you ever get discouraged growing up writing poetry? Um, yeah, well, after graduate school, <laughs> New York is such a funny place. Um, people are all so intense about what they're doing there. And graduate school was fairly intense. And after, after I finished, I was like, boy, I don't know if that was such a great idea for me to try to do this professionally because it's this thing that I love. And then you see this this whole side of it that's pobiz, like the you know, um, people striving so hard to be published and have like be visible and things like that. And it just seemed like a, a part of the life that a part of the reason that I wrote poetry was to not participate in that life. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't know. I was very discouraged after after my graduate program. Um, but I was also, I took a lot of skills with me from that experience. Um, gosh, they taught me so much, like, about the craft that I had now all of these new tools at my disposal. So I was like, well, all right, you guys go ahead and do that thing with the pobiz, and I'll be over here just kind of writing poems that I can be, like, happy with. Um, so I think that I got discouraged by the idea of trying to, like, market or monetize it, um, this thing that I did for my own well-being. Um, and I still, that still makes me very tired. <laughs> I don't like doing that at all. Um, I try to avoid it if I can. Um, and, but when I, growing up, I don't think that it was ever really like much of an option. You know, you're always told like, go to school, get an education so you can help the people and uh whatever that means and so you know it was like oh maybe law maybe teaching maybe this maybe that um uh and so I thought well what would I like to teach right and I thought well I'd like to teach poetry <laughs> um, and so that's kind of how I ended up like going down this road but um I remember like kind of the head scratching that went on when I was like at Western and I was like, I'm going to study English. And everyone was like, what are they, what are you going to do with that degree? And then the argument with like one of my cousins was like, well, she can go to law school after that. <laughs> like, you know, like English majors go to law school. And so, you know, that was kind of the, that was the thing. And then, um, and then after I 
went to Sarah Lawrence, then it was like, wow, okay, so you're actually going to try to pursue a career in the arts. All right, well, best of luck, you know. Um, but I think there was still just a little bit of puzzlement. Um, but you can't, you can't really listen to that. I mean, it's good to listen to other people guiding you and what their like practical advice is. But it's also super important to just like listen to what is inside of you um, because other people have no idea. Um, and my grandma was a big inspiration. She always encouraged my creativity. She, she like loved that I was, she was a very creative person. She painted, she silk screened, she knitted, she just did all kinds of fun things um, with her time. She made little books, she made cookbooks. Um, and she wrote poems, you know, and so um, I think that like following her example of how to bring like whimsy and beauty into your life and into the world and into the lives of other people around you was a big inspiration for me that just kind of kept me grounded in this idea that like what I was doing had value if no one else, uh, if to no one else than to me. Um <laughs> So that, that kind of enabled me to stay anchored in, in what I wanted to do and follow, you know, my North Star or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I would say... Um, there is an obvious answer to why are you doing this, and that is that you're responding to centuries of indigenous erasure. Um, there is a deep need for our stories in the world, you know, and for um, people to have access to um, our voices and to encounter opportunities to encounter indigenous values. Um, because, you know, we've just been given the same story. Like, if you go into any Hollywood movie, like, I think about the Avengers movie, um, the, the most recent one, Age of... Well, the one where, like, they bring back everybody from... How, you know, he, Thanos, he comes and he, like, snaps his fingers and half of the population of the universe disappears. And it's all just very democratic or whatever. And then they like turn back time. The Avengers turn back time to kind of like bring everybody back. Um, and it, that that's just, but the movie starts out and like, you know, the ecosystem's balanced and becoming healthy again. And there's like whales in New York Harbor and things like that. And they're like, no, 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 but we need all the people back, right? Um, it's just kind of like putting a supremacy on people above all other things. And it, that just kind of, that value system is so counter to like indigenous values or anything that's healthy for the planet, you know, which, you know, you have to acknowledge that we share this planet with other beings and that their health, our health relies upon their health and well-being. And if we're not kind of like operating in a balanced way, it's not going to be able to sustain. And so, um, you know, other story, our stories have to be told. Other stories have to be told. And so if you have it in yourself at all, anywhere to be a writer, do it because um, the world needs your voice, um, needs your story, and 
you never know who's going to encounter it and whose life it's going to change. Um, I've experienced that a lot just in these last few years. Um, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's surprising when you can change somebody's thinking or worldview just by something that you've written. Um, and that is kind of how it's done, right? You, you, I, I was in, um, Washington, D.C. at the Library of Congress this spring for Joy Harjo's closing ceremonies, and that was amazing, and also to participate in the Indigenous Nations Poets um, Inaugural Fellowship with 16 other poets. That was really cool, but um, one thing <laughs> about the Library of Congress is like, you, you know, there are not books everywhere. <laughs> you walk into the main hall, and it's a lot of stone and some mosaic work, and it's it's really beautiful but there's one book, there's one book that's like right out there for everybody to see, like right in everyone's face. And it's uh, a Gutenberg Bible. So, you know, like the invention of the letterpress. Okay. So that made it possible for them to like mass produce Christianity and like push it out into the world. And that resulted in like, you know, manifest destiny and that people bolt, like, you know, everyone's just kind of like, this is it. This is the story we're going to tell and we're going with it. And so all that sort of displaced all of these other beautiful stories of creation of how to connect and like what a human's place is in the world. I heard um, the scholar Arnold Krupat talking about and he he was a professor of indigenous literature at Sarah Lawrence for a long time. I never got to take a class with him while I was there, but he taught an alumni class. And he was talking about how in all of the creation stories he's ever encountered, which is probably in the thousands, um, there's one, <laughs> there's only one where the people like come up out of the dirt and then are alienated from all the rest of creation and pushed out from their homeland and given the directive to subdue nature, right? And so, and, and that's Christianity, but in all the other stories, we come up out of the earth and we learn how to um, be in community with each other and with the, with the animal people and with the, you know, whatever it is that's sustaining us in our lo locality. Um, and so I think that the rest of those stories <laughs> we need other stories um because we've just had the same one for ever since the printing of the gutenberg bible <laughs> so i guess um be a writer yay writers I think people probably first have to um, really work through their own biases about, you know, well, like I was just talking about, what's informing your value systems? And, you know, people often will ask, like, you know, what can we do in order to, you know, a variation on that question. And it's hard because... Um, well, not everyone has like means or or position or or like you know, a, a way to try to really make big change. But everybody has it within themselves to examine their value systems and where they're coming from, um, and what their belief systems, what their core belief systems are that inform their lives, and um, go ahead and try to learn about other cultures and try to understand really why things are done the way that they're done um, in cultures besides like American, you know, regular American culture. And that's hard. That's really hard. But that's really the work. Um, 
because then you can actually enter into dialogue and collaboration in a respectful way and in, in a from a position of like what you think and uh, the values that's informing your actions are are as valid as mine <laughs> and I can you know we can work better that way because I think that so often well okay this is maybe a different conversation but things like uh, you know discussions around who gets to teach AI <laughs> who gets to teach AI um, and give the inputs that are going to help AI like work it's 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 old white scientist men who are leading the project. They're like, well, we should definitely be the ones. Like this, this has been discussed and people, advisory boards and things have been like, you know, you should have like indigenous children teaching AI. <laughs> you should have, you should have women. And they're like, okay, yeah, but you know, we're going to teach it. And so they te they're the ones that are teaching AI. And so it's developing the technology in a way that is like going to favor, you know, their worldviews and belief systems and things like that. And um, like, you know, if you're ever on a committee and there's one indigenous person in the room, that person has to fight a lot harder to be heard or to have their, their views um, acknowledged and honored than whoever the majority is the work really is with the majority to try to figure out truly how to honor other worldviews than their own <laughs> uh, remembering sila at shwilisen and sila is the word for grandmother in chlamichasen and shwilisen is a place name for where we used to harvest shellfish sometimes still probably it's okay but you know, there's a lot of cow poop running through there now. That's a good example of like not honoring other people's worldviews. Like there was so much good food here, <laughs> like at one time. Now, you know, people have to work really hard to keep cows and um, at the cost of the, the shellfish beds. Remembering Sila at Schwilisen. We used to say when the tide is out, the table is set. The earth provided and if one day it didn't, the spirit fed us. The glittering turn of the tide, the arc of the sun in the sky, the call of birds, the sound of waves. To be nourished in this way makes glass doors opening and closing themselves between me and that food on grocery store shelves seem false, empty. That food, where does it come from? Whose hands grew it? Was there patience and care? Were there prayers? Think of how it got there, what it's made of. When I was a girl, everything we ate came from the earth that loved us through the hands of people we loved. So that's not just my grandmother, that's other elders, you know, who've talked, who I've heard over the years, but, you know, I wanted to keep their voice and keep the thing, the types of things that they said to me and put it somewhere where I'd always have access to it. Because another thing that happens is people want to have an idea about um, what like indigenous art is or indigenous literature. And those are the people with the means of production, right? So like the, the publishers and the editors. And 
I once had a teacher at Sarah Lawrence say, well, I don't really think of you as an Indian. And I'm pretty sure I'm like the only Indian that he's ever met in his whole life. Maybe he met Sherman Alexie one time because he did give me Sherman Alexie's book. And he said, here, read this, you know. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is the kind of poetry you think I should be writing. You know, like I didn't say any of this, but I left feeling that. And it just kind of like got under my skin and has like really irked me a lot because um, – you know, it, it takes away our voice to be like pigeonholed and put in this idea of like what another person's idea of like indigenous poetry is. It just really diminishes what we're able to say if they won't publish it because it doesn't have like talking animals in it or something, you know what I mean? And so, um, (laughs) so this poem is called Daffodils and it's after the poem by Wordsworth, I wandered lonely as a cloud. And it's a poem that I've always loved because, you know, he talks about being depressed and like coming over this hill and seeing this field of daffodils and then feeling uplifted and light. And I feel like poetry does that for me. Um, It gives me the daffodils. The indigenous poet writes life-affirming poems about daffodils. Her audience says, but you're oppressed. The indigenous poet writes poems of outrage about oppression. Nobody cares, she gets depressed. The indigenous poet gets requests for poems about being indigenous. But all my poems are about being indigenous. The indigenous poet isn't considered an indigenous poet because shouldn't you write about genocide? The indigenous poet tries to write poems about genocide. Her poet spirit dies. Genocide gets the job done. The indigenous poet says stanks a and writes about daffodils and the untouchable beauty of living a poet's life. And so that phrase, that's from our Chumichasin, and it means, what the hell? Because, <laughs> you know, we didn't have swear words in Chumichasin, and we certainly didn't have the concept of hell. I always say, like, can you imagine 200 years ago, nobody went to hell. Like, nobody burned eternally in the fiery pits of hell here. Like, we just, that wasn't even a thing. And, and then, you know... Uh, the Catholics showed up and they were like, you know, you have to eat this and drink this and it's that guy. And if you don't, you're going, you know, and we're like, what? I can just imagine what the, what the ancestors thought about that story. Um, but yeah, no concept of hell, no swear words. <laughs> um, yeah, I learned that from Smackia, actually. Yeah. What, what the what the um, hell? Thanks to Tim Yeah, he's very funny. It's funny, too, because, you know, people are like, you should write about, you know, your history and your culture and, and genocide and stuff. And and I'm like, okay, but don't be angry about it. You know, like, that's the other understanding. Like, you should write about it, but you should also be very loving and forgiving when you when you write about it. And, you know, maybe write about, like, you know, nature. And so, and and, and it's like, oh, God, it's, it's a lot. It's weird. And then I also tell people, because a lot of, it's something that comes up is, like, how has your heritage influenced your work? And I tell people, like, you and I, we have a heritage, like, non-Indigenous people. Like, we share that history. You have to tell it, too, like it actually was. Like, I, it can't just be all on me telling about, you know, the monstrous things that your ancestors did. Like, you have to, like, really encounter that and and make peace with it or whatever. Or, you know, like, um, try to make, uh, to, to, to reconcile it somehow. Because just to put that onus on indigenous writers is too much. Um, 
and people don't. They just tell, you know, they just make heroes of their of the history that made this country and it's not acknowledged kind of like truly what happened and I think that just needs to be done in, in the dominant culture as well <laughs> oh so cool. um, thank you for your words they're very powerful Kaishka, thank you so much Thank you for listening to Young and Indigenous. Young and Indigenous is produced by Children of the Setting Sun Productions. We are an Indigenous-led nonprofit based in Bellingham, Washington on the ancestral homelands of the Lummi and Nooksack peoples. Original music by Mark Nichols, Spokanum, Julie Lewis, and Anton George. Additional music credits to Keith Jefferson, Adam Lawrence, and Mark Nichols. Eagle and the Man poem, read and written by Free Borsi. And a special shout out to our sponsors, the Discurrent Foundation and the First Nations Development Institute. This episode was produced by Roy Alexander and Wakikia Curly Bear. Thank you for listening. Hi. Hi. All right, should we do? Young and indigenous, young and indigenous. You gonna sing with me, Roy? Three. I'm just gonna bop my head to one.